Father God, please help Matthew to speak now. Thank you for the work and the study that you've enabled him to do. Thank you for the understanding that you've given him. Please use this time now to teach us by your spirit. Let it be more than a man's words, but your own. Change us, equip us, challenge us, grow us, please. Amen. Good morning. Um, For the next few Sundays as we approach Easter, uh, we're looking at a series of events and conversations that Jesus had uh, in the week before his death. Uh, So last week, Charlie uh, took us through Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. He arrived from nearby Jericho, uh, followed by a large crowd, people laying cloaks and palm fronds on the road in front of him, creating a first century red carpet. Uh, Crowds went ahead of him, they followed him, they surrounded him, and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Uh, phrases we've just read in uh, Psalm 118. But you can imagine the madness, the Passover is approaching, Jews are streaming into the city from all over, the streets are packed already, and then a huge mass of people crying, Hosanna in the highest heaven, pushed their way through, clearing the streets for a man riding on the back of a donkey. This was not an arrival that you could miss. And so I guess the next, the the big question that's on everyone's lips now is this. What is this man going to do next? Um, We pick up the story in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 12. Um, So if you'd like to turn there, um, I will read it. Uh, to us. That's on page 989. So Matthew, Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So with the eyes of the whole city on him, Jesus strides into the temple courts like he owns the place. Looking around at the crowds of pilgrims and merchants, he drives out everyone he finds there. This isn't closing time at a shop. You know, um, excuse me, it's uh, five o'clock. Would you make your way to the exit? This is clearing a Gloucester Green market on a busy Saturday, corralling locals, tourists, sellers alike to the exits. Chaos takes over. There's people selling doves. The tables are upturned and the doves scatter, flying into the melee. The money changes tables are turned over. Money scatters on the floor. People dive to pick it up. And above the cacophony of noise, Jesus cries, my house should be a house of prayer. 
but you have turned it into a den of robbers. At first, it looks like Jesus is objecting to the money changes, uh, thinking, implying perhaps they're defrauding the people by calling them robbers. But that's not the full picture. People came to the temple from all over. To take part in sacrifices, they would have needed to buy doves and larger animals. They might not have the right currency. Money changes were probably necessary. There could have been dishonesty among the merchants. We don't know for sure. But it's not just the merchants who are turfed out. The ordinary worshippers are too. So what else is going on? Well, many of Jesus' first hearers would have recognized the phrase, den of robbers. God speaks in Jeremiah chapter 7, and he speaks to people coming to worship at the temple and says to them, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me to this house that bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all of these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So God tells his people in Jeremiah's day that their worship at the temple is unacceptable. They were paying lip service to God, but really were worshipping other gods. Yet they thought they were safe because they had the temple to go to. A den of robbers was where thieves could hide out and feel safe from all of the crimes they had committed. But God tells them, I have been watching. I've seen what you've been doing. The temple cannot save you. What you need is a heart of repentance and a return to the Lord. And in Jesus' day, um, we have a similar situation. There were many people who were great at religious observance. They observed the Passover. They went to the synagogue and the temple. But their hearts, like the people of Jeremiah's day, were far from the Lord. Jesus says, my house should be a house of prayer. But true prayer is a sign of faith and relationship. And that is what is lacking here. And so, Jesus kicks out the merchants and the pilgrims. He's not just denouncing the commercial activities, but the whole system. You keep coming to the temple as if that itself can save you, he is saying. But it is true faith and relationship with God that you need. Jesus condemns the empty religion um, of the people. And in an additional act of defiance against the temple authorities, he then starts to heal the blind and the sick and the lame in the temple courts when, according to tradition, they were forbidden from entering. Children run round, continuing the cries of the crowd, Hosanna to the son of David. And it's all too much. The religious authorities snap. Do you hear what these children are saying? They ask. So let's pause briefly and think 
for ourselves what it is the children are saying. Um, it's easy to write off Hosanna as just generic praise for some important person. What does Hosanna to the son of David actually mean? Well, I mentioned just now that we actually read the words Hosanna um, in Psalm 118. It's translated, Lord, save us. So originally it was a Hebrew cry for help to the Lord. But over time, it became an expression of confidence and praise for God having saved. So think of someone struggling in a deep swimming pool. Hosanna used to mean, save me, a cry to the lifeguard to jump in. But over the years, it came to mean, I'm saved. The lifeguard has jumped in and is swimming towards you. He has acted and will save you. Hosanna is a cry of confidence and of faith in God to save. Then, son of David, the Jews uh, were looking forward to a descendant of their great king David to come and save their people. The crowds in Jerusalem, by crying to Jesus as the son of David, seemed to have realized that he was, in fact, a descendant of David. And so they were praising him as that coming king. So put together, the phrase, Hosanna to the son of David, means something like this. The son of David is our salvation, or salvation belongs to the king. And because it's directed at Jesus, it's saying Jesus is the coming king, our salvation. So when the religious authorities ask Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? We're in no doubt. They have heard, and they are not happy. The crowds and the children are pointing to Jesus and saying, here is the savior, here is the king. And the savior and king has condemned the empty religion of the authorities by clearing the temple and welcoming in the blind and lame. The authorities are outraged. And yet Jesus pushes their outrage still further. Yes, he says, I have heard what they're saying. But don't you remember what the scripture says? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. In other words, the children have got it right, and you have got it wrong. They are praising me as saviour and king. They are putting their hope in me for their salvation. But you are missing the point. You are defending your empty religious system, but there's no heart to it. You need me. Jesus is showing them the problem with their empty religion and pointing to himself as the solution. The mainstream religion of the day was empty, full of rules and rituals, but with no relationship at the heart. But rather than follow the establishment religion, Jesus says that the children are doing the right thing. They are praising him. Jesus is pointing everyone to himself as the heart of true religion, one based on faith in a savior, not blind trust in a system. On that note, Jesus withdraws to nearby Bethany for the night. Uh, and as I said, we will pick up his discussions with the authorities uh, next week and in the weeks to come. 
But before that, Matthew recounts a strange story involving a fig tree that at first seems to be completely unrelated. Uh, We'll see whether that's the case in a second. Let me read uh, from verse 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. So after the dramatic clearing of the temple, this little incident, miraculous though it clearly is, hardly seems worth mentioning. In fact, it seems almost petty in comparison. The day before, Jesus clears out the trappings of a dead religious system in the midst of a crowd, and now he quietly curses a tree because it's barren and he is hungry. Is he just moody because he's missed breakfast? Well, no, there is something going on here beneath the surface. Jesus is illustrating what had happened the previous day in the temple. Throughout the Old Testament, a tree is used as a common metaphor for the people of Israel. Um, In Hosea, it's a fig tree. In other places, it's vines. Um, But here, Jesus uses this tree as a metaphor for the religious people of his day. Because the tree has a lot of outward leaves. From a distance, you can see that. It's outwardly very impressive. But when you look more closely, there's no fruit to be seen. Not even the early little uh, fig nodules that you'd have got at that time of year. It appears lush and green at a distance, seemingly full of life. But if there's no fruit then the tree has started to die already. Just so, then, with the nation of Israel's day. On the outside, things were going pretty well. They had a temple, a priesthood, sacrifices, synagogues, ceremonies, all the outward signs of religiosity, but no real fruit. God was meant to be the source of their life, but they were cut off from him from the roots. There was no true faith, and so no true fruit. And so Jesus condemns their faithlessness through this acted-out parable. Far from being a throwing the toys out of a pram moment, this is a metaphor of a far greater judgment. Jesus is condemning faithless Israel. The disciples don't quite get it. Have a look again at verse 20, um, where they ask, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? They've seen far greater miracles by this point. Um, So it seems slightly odd that they would comment on what is, um, in comparison, quite a small thing. But Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them something about what true faith is like. And as he does so, we'll see a great contrast between the empty religion of faithless Israel and true faith focused on Jesus. Because whilst the empty religion of Israel had no power and produced no fruit, faith in Jesus can move mountains. So we'll read from verse 21. 
Jesus replied, Truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So as we've seen, the religion of the Jewish nation could look very impressive on the outside, but at its heart, it was empty. Jesus says that the temple is meant to be a house of prayer, that is, a house of relationship, of communion with God. But the temple wasn't like that any longer. So in the first half of the passage, Jesus points to himself as the true heart of religion. He is the coming king, our salvation. It's through faith in him, relationship with him, that salvation comes, and where changed lives come from, and where there is real spiritual fruit. So he starts, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself in the sea, and it will be done. It's a picture of the kind of miracles God alone can work. But the important thing isn't so much the miracle itself, but where it comes from, because it's faith in Jesus that can do the impossible. So what is he saying? That true faith means we can ask for anything and get it. So I'd quite like a Tesla electric sports car, and if I pray, is it gonna be waiting outside? Well, no. Because faith and belief aren't just qualities uh, that we conjure up inside ourselves. You know, I, I conjure up a lot of faith, and if I pray, then something's going to happen outside. No, it's no good having faith in some kind of generic way, because what matters is who you have faith in, and it's their power that is important. So uh, by way of a slightly... Um, uh, lesser illustration. A few years ago, the amazingly successful manager of Manchester United, Sir Alex Ferguson, stepped down and he was replaced by David Moyes, his uh, chosen successor of Ferguson. You could say that Sir Alex had faith that Moyes would be able to continue his success. Unfortunately for Manchester United, as many here will know, Ferguson's faith was misplaced and United have yet to recover anything like their previous form. So Alex had faith, yes, but faith in the wrong person. But Christian faith is different. In Jesus, we see the most trustworthy person ever to walk the earth. Everything he promises, he fulfills. Everything he says will happen, will happen. And so our faith in him isn't like Alex Ferguson's hope in David Moyes. Our faith is certain. Now, elsewhere, Jesus makes it clear that it is prayers according to God's will that are answered. Uh, so getting my sports car is probably out. But Jesus uses this exaggerated example to show that prayerful faith can achieve what is humanly impossible because Jesus is powerful and he is trustworthy. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer, he says. So having first condemned empty religion, here Jesus commends prayerful faith. 
So this is the big contrast um, portrayed by Jesus in these two episodes. On the one hand, you have the religion of the priests and teachers of the law. Jesus condemns their empty religion, a religion of rituals and rules with little effects on hearts and lives. Sure, there is lots of outward activity, a lot of leaves, but the fruitfulness that comes from faith in God just isn't there. On the other hand, Jesus points to himself as God's appointed savior and king. He points to the children's cry of Hosanna and says, yes, you can trust me to save. He commends prayerful faith, talking to the God you know and love, relating to him, depending on him for everything. He tells his disciples and us that we can have great confidence in his power to do the impossible to bring fruit in our lives, to change us from the inside out. Now, I'd imagine there'll be a couple of different responses to what we've heard so far. You may be here as a visitor, and you're not sure what to make of Jesus in this passage. First, he runs riot in a marketplace. Then he curses a fig tree, seemingly out of spite. It's quite a different picture to our culture's common view of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But I hope you've been able to get a more rounded picture of who Jesus is and what he cares about. Because he cares deeply about false and empty religion that fools people into thinking that they are okay. Many atheists today deride the hypocrisy of religious people. And Jesus would agree with them. Putting on a religious performance with your heart unchanged is exactly what Jesus condemns in this passage. And he is also showing us that he is an authority to be reckoned with. He's welcomed into the capital city by crowds of people proclaiming him as the son of David, the promised king. He then claims authority over God's own temple by driving out everyone there and welcoming in those who are forbidden from entering. He then proves his God-given authority by miraculously healing the sick, then destroying a fig tree, symbolically showing his judgment on the wider nation. And at Easter, we'll see even further proof as he rises from the dead, just as he said he would. Elsewhere in the Bible, we learn that Jesus is returning to judge those who have rejected him, as he begins to demonstrate in the temple in this passage. Just as he came to the temple to condemn empty religion, so he will return to reject those who trust in themselves for their salvation. If you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, have you reckoned with this fully fleshed out Jesus? A Jesus with authority, with power that proves his authority, who calls people to trust and to submit to him as their saviour and king. But at the same time, one who cares deeply for his people, protecting them from the false hope of religion by giving up his life for them. Have you investigated this Jesus Come and find uh, me or Charlie or others afterwards if you want to talk some more. But maybe you are here as a regular and you're wondering what relevance this passage has for you and for us as a church because 
Here, Jesus is condemning an empty religion that we're probably quite happy condemning ourselves. Christians are those with faith in Jesus, not in rituals or temples. But as I've been preparing this week, I've been struck afresh by what Jesus criticizes about their empty religion and how I personally can be more like them than I often think. So back at the start, the first evidence against the religious leaders that Jesus gives us is that the temple is no longer a house of prayer. Prayer is the evidence of a living faith, and it is absent from the temple religion. What's in its place seems to be activity, religious ritual, acts of service, public attendance. Maybe that's how it all started. Time with God in prayer giving way to all of those activities. Many of them good, but none as important as the relationship that should have been at the heart of it. And ultimately, none of which would have any benefit without that relationship. Then, in the second half of the passage, Jesus mentions prayer as an expression of faith and dependence on God to work the otherwise impossible. Prayer here is a direct expression of faith in him. As the French theologian John Calvin put it, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. That is, the first thing that faith does is that it prays, because faith is a recognition that we need God to do what we cannot do ourselves. We are naturally powerless to save ourselves or to accomplish anything in the Christian life. Our salvation, our growth, comes entirely from God, and so prayer for God's help should be our instinctive response. Faith is saying to God, I trust you, not myself, and so I come to you for everything I need in prayer. I found these passages a real challenge because I so often go without prayer, Almost without realizing it, I slip back into self-reliance rather than faith. I can be incredibly active in serving the church. I mean, I, I haven't tested this out, but as a ministry trainee, I reckon I'd be fired if I wasn't. Um, but I find it all too easy to be busy without asking for God's help or indeed to spend time with him at all. And I think as a, as a church um, here and in this country, we must be alert to this danger being so busy with activities that we neglect the relationship of faith and dependence on God. And one of the big warning signs must be where we see a lack of prayer in our lives, both as individuals and as a church family. Fruitfulness doesn't come from external activities and performance, but from prayerful faith. Am I praying as I should? Are we praying as we should? If we're not, it could mean that we're becoming increasingly self-reliant, focused on our own activism and activities and abilities, rather than entrusting our lives and our efforts to the Lord. So as we close, let's remind ourselves of the Lord Jesus who has been speaking to us from this passage. Let's remember the passion with which he opposes prayerless, empty religion and the authority with which he judges it. But let us also remember the cries of the crowds, Hosanna, 
to the son of David. Salvation belongs to King Jesus because he is the object of our faith, the one who answers our prayers and the one who can accomplish the impossible. So let's pray with confident faith for him to work powerfully in our lives. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you are our saviour and king. When we rely on ourselves, please forgive us. When we don't pray, please show us our need and your sufficiency. When we fill our lives with activity, but leave no time for you, please forgive us, help us, and show us again the privilege it is to know you and to speak to you. Work a miracle in our hearts, we pray, so that we might grow in faith and love. Amen.